Please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel and the 12th chapter. Daniel chapter 12. As we come to the conclusion this morning of Daniel's fourth vision, uh, we will look at the end of this vision and really the uh, the follow-up to it, the postlude, if you will, to the revealing of this vision from this angelic messenger. And then... uh, We will shortly, not this week, but to follow, we will um, do a little bit of a recap of the book of Daniel so that we can take away the major lessons from the book before we move on to other, uh, not greener, but to different pastures. Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 1, we're just going to read the whole chapter, and then we will focus starting on verse 4 through the end. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing. One on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river... How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end, and then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Have you ever finished reading something or even perhaps heard some words from the scriptures and wondered to yourself, what am I supposed to do with this? Of course you have, and maybe you're even wondering this about what you've been learning in the book of Daniel. Well, if it makes you feel any better, there is some degree to which Daniel himself is asking the same question. What he says in verse 8 will be the outcome of these events. What is all of this going to result in? And as it turns out, Daniel is not given any more information than we have about it. 
We have what is written down here just as Daniel received it. In fact, if anything, we ourselves today have more information about the way that these things were going to turn out than Daniel did. And for that, we should be thankful. In fact, we're going to look at a little bit of that as we walk through the passage. But Daniel here is left uh, with some instructions to finish writing this book and then to go about his business, to live life the way that he is supposed to live, to trust in the Lord that he's going to work things out according to his own plan and to live righteously and expectantly in the time between when this information was given to him and the time when God will make all things new. And so this passage shows us that Daniel is told to finish the writing and preserve it for those who would follow him. And he is supposed to, as we are supposed to as well, put his personal hope in his reward, which is to come at the end time. This is the driving message of this book. And this is the driving message of this particular section of this book. Now, we have already seen that God has worked out his uh, plans that he's revealed to Daniel in a number of ways throughout, especially chapter 11, and the things in history that have happened since then, and the prophecies that have been fulfilled. But here in chapter 12, there is an encouragement to Daniel and to those who would live at the very end time, which is still yet to come, and then by implication for those of us today that we should put our hope in what God is going to do in the future, that we should endure through hardship, that we should wait expectantly for God and for his kingdom to come, and that we should live righteously in the meantime. And these are the things that we want to keep in mind and to consider and take away as we walk through this conclusion of Daniel's fourth vision. And so we begin by looking in verse 4 at the instructions that are given to Daniel about the prophetic vision. What is he supposed to do with the material that he's been given? Not so much how is he supposed to personally apply it, though that will come later on in this section. But what is he actually supposed to do with the information that he has received in terms of writing it down and storing it? What's he supposed to do with it? We have the book of Daniel written down today. We have the information that's been passed along to us. So very clearly he did something with it. What was he told to do with it uh, when he received it in the first place? And there are two instructions that are given that are connected with one another. They basically are, uh, they they appear to be more or less the same instruction. And they're found in the first half of the verse. As for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time until the end of time now this tells us first of all the value of the words for the end time the value of these words for the end time that is these are not just words that are given so that people will have a passage to read when they come to chapter 12 they're not given just so that they're written down but they're supposed to be sealed up until the end and we'll see as we go through this in a few verses over the next few verses the specific value that they will have for those who are around at the end time and also for those who are around all the way until the end time or on the way there chronologically including where we are today he says conceal these words seal up the book now when you picture a book what do you picture 
You probably have something in mind which would be uh, along the lines of what we call the codex format, which is basically just the books that have pages that fold together. They open up like this, like basically every book that we have. Well, that was not really the way that books were put together during that time until sometime later, uh, after the time of Christ, was when that was commonly adopted. At this time, you would have had this probably in a scroll form, rolled up. And then it could be sealed off and closed by virtue of actually having it, the, once it was rolled all the way up, you can seal it and close it in that way. Uh, the book that he is referring to here, it's difficult to tell exactly the full extent of what is in view. Um, it could refer to this vision only. It could refer to the entire book of Daniel. I think this is probably more likely that this section is included in the entire section of the whole book of Daniel that he's supposed to write up. Either way, he's done with the vision. And this is the last vision that he receives chronologically in the book of Daniel. As we've seen these four visions starting in chapter 7 all the way through chapter 12. This is the last one that he gets. So when he's told to seal this one up, functionally he is to seal up the entire book of Daniel that he has now written and that he will write down and finish writing here that we now have today. He is told to conceal these words and to seal them up. The idea behind conceal is that of um, stopping something up or plugging it up literally is the idea and it refers really to keeping something that is secret. Um, it's something that is not known in verse 9, he uses the same term. He says that these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Uh, chapter 8, verse 26, he says, Keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Now, we have to stop and think. If what he meant by this was literally keep it a secret from anyone, then Daniel would have been sinning to write down the book of Daniel and to tell us that these words were actually spoken and to tell us what had been said. So clearly what he means is not that you're supposed to take these words and hide them away so that only you actually know the words that were spoken. Rather, this has something to do with actually the interpretation and the meaning of these words, when it says to conceal them, what this is saying is you're not going to understand all of the significance of these words until some future time. Seal up the book, conceal these words until the end of time. So then, he's not telling him to hide them away. He's saying, look, this is the end of the explanations. This is the end of what you're going to get. And we get a picture of how all this plays out when in the book of Revelation, there is a picture in some portion of this where seals are actually broken and when they are one by one broken and things start to be revealed. In that case, you have a book which is judgments of God that are then brought upon the earth. So it's not the same thing as breaking the seals of Daniel, but we do understand that there's going to be things that are not revealed until that time. So then this is to be concealed. It is to be uh, hidden in terms of interpretation and understanding how all of this stuff is going to play out in history. Now, this is where it becomes important to understand uh, a little bit of a technical biblical interpretation principle, which is that there is a difference between the meaning of a passage and the referent of a passage, okay? The thing that it's making reference to that comes in the future. Or perhaps you might also say there is a difference between the meaning of the passage and the significance that it has that we come to find out later on. 
And sometimes we get confused and we say, because we don't understand the specific person that the scripture is referring to in a prophecy, then we just can't understand that prophecy in general. And there's really no reason to even pursue understanding it. There's no reason for us to study it because after all, we can't know all of that stuff about the future. It's just the kind of thing that, you know, we can only speculate about and then God will work it all out when he comes. And we don't really need to value it very much. And we don't need to spend that kind of effort. After all, we have more important things for living in the here and now. Now that we should take care of and worry about. This is kind of the way that a lot of people approach prophecy. But this is not the way that the Bible describes it. It recognizes that there is a distinction between understanding the words that are spoken prophetically and then seeing the fulfillment of those where we are made to understand it more fully, more clearly, because we now know what it was referring to from the beginning. And we get a picture of this when we go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this. 1 Peter chapter 1, hopefully a familiar passage to you, but uh, verses 10 through 12 give us a little bit of an insight into how this works, how this prophecy for the future and the revealing of details over time works. So 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about salvation, and it says, starting in verse 10, listen to this. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, there is, of course, in this passage, just a wealth of of richness. Uh, First of all, mentioning the sufferings of Christ, the fact that the Old Testament prophets did predict that. Jesus made this clear in Luke chapter 24 when he asked these two disciples on the Emmaus Road, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory? Didn't he have to die first and then get resurrected? This was predicted in the Old Testament. But it also is saying here that the prophets spoke, they spoke these words, but it was the spirit of Christ within them that was actually giving the message, communicating this. This speaks to the nature of the scripture, divine inspiration. When the Old Testament prophets were speaking, they weren't speaking things of their own interpretation of the world. They weren't speaking their own speculations. They were speaking the things that the Spirit of God was telling them to speak. So much so that they actually had to study their own writings to find out what was intended by the things that they were saying. If they were just making this up on the spot, why would they go back and say, you know, I wonder what I wrote. What did I mean when I wrote this? It wasn't that at all. They were given things to say by God, predictions about the future. And they understood the words that God spoke. They very clearly were able to take this word and write it down on this page. So there wasn't an issue with communication, but as far as understanding the significance and in particular who it would be referred to in the future, They had to actually go back and study. So that's why he said in verse 10, they made careful searches and inquiries. They were trying to find out a couple of things. What person or time? Who is it going to be and when is it going to happen? That's what they needed to know. But they understood that he was going to suffer. And they understood that he was going to enter into his glory. And they understood that Christ was going to come. So all of this stuff was perfectly clear. They just didn't know that it would be Jesus of Nazareth in the year that he was born, in the year that he came to minister. That's what they didn't know. Similarly then, when we are in the book of Daniel, he's given a lot of prophecy. He's given a lot of things. And just because he doesn't know the name Antiochus or the name Ptolemy 
or the name of whoever Antichrist might be doesn't mean that he didn't comprehend the meaning of the words that were given to him. And it's important that we understand this so that we don't just dismiss all prophecy as too difficult to understand or, even worse, not worth studying. The prophets themselves vouched for the value of studying scripture, uh, prophetic scripture, very carefully. In fact, all the way to the extent that you can get where you run out of ability to understand it even further. They demonstrated the benefit of that by example, by doing it themselves. And so we ought also to follow in their path and say, look, we don't know what some of these things are going to refer to. We don't know what land exactly this thing is going to take place in or what the name of the person is going to be or what the time is going to be or all exactly of the details of how that's going to look. But we can know it's going to happen because God says so. And we can understand these prophecies. So we don't know everything that will come to pass But to the extent God has revealed it, we can know it, and we can know it with certainty. And we can know it with clarity. We can know it with confidence, and we can find hope in this. And this is the point of him giving these things. Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end time. This idea of sealing means preservation. It means protection. Um, There is also uh, the idea of authentication, where this is given sort of the royal seal of approval. And basically this means these words are set in stone and they cannot be tampered with. They should not be messed with. They can't be tampered with. And we need to respect them as the very words of God. The words are aimed at those who will live in the time of the end. Seal up the book until the end of time. Now, some of the things have come to pass in the meantime, and we will see this in just a second. But it is aimed at those who live at the end, and there is a particular benefit for them, as we will learn. Now, let's look, before we get there, at not just the value of the words for the end time, but uh, the things happening before the end time. What is going to happen between now, when Daniel, from Daniel's perspective, so the 530s BC, between then and Whenever it might happen that these final events that he's just spoken of, verses 1 through 3 in particular, whenever those happen, what are things going to be like? Well, it says many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. These are very general statements, aren't they? Very general statements. And has led to uh, not a little bit of confusion or questions or maybe even speculation about this. Uh, the idea of going back and forth really just means roam around. It's a single word that means to roam around, to rove around. And the concept is just people are going to do stuff. There's just going to be things happening. People are going to live their lives. And there are going to be events taking place. It's almost like when Jesus said that there will be wars and rumors of wars. He is not saying that that will only take place immediately before the sign of his coming. He's saying that's just the way that things are going to be. And here Daniel also says many will go back and forth. There's just going to be a lot of activity. Things will continue to happen. And along with that, he says knowledge will increase. This just means, once again, knowledge. It's a very straightforward word. There's nothing particularly special about this. It's not a kind of special biblical knowledge per se built up into the word. Um, But it says that it will increase. It'll multiply. It'll become greater in quantity. Now, there is one view about this, which uh, basically takes the idea that people are just going to know more things. 
and knowledge in general will increase in the world. And it is certainly true that that has happened. It is certainly true that there is more data, more information available about things than that seems to be growing and perhaps even now is spiking in our own world. So some may look around and say, well, there's the internet, there are search engines, uh, there is AI, all kinds of things that seem to be making knowledge uh, just explode. So does this mean that this is the time of the end? Well, he doesn't really say that this is going to bring about the time of the end, for one thing. But I also think that there is a better way of understanding this, which is that the words of the book are sealed up. People are going to um, have activity. They're going to do these activities. But knowledge will increase. And I do think that this is more directly referring to the content and the events that are predicted by Daniel between his time and the time of the end, meaning that more details are going to come out about the fulfillment of these particular prophecies that he has talked about. And we can see that this actually has happened historically. Chapter 11 is a chapter that almost all the way to the end, at least in, through verse 35, we know now who that was referring to. We know the events that took place in those verses, and we saw them take place historically. They have already come to pass. And so the idea would be a lot of people are going to do a lot of things, and the significance or the reference of the prophets, of the prophetic predictions in this book, are going to become clearer over time. So uh, this is what I think is the best way of understanding this. This, by the way, would align further with what we'll see in verse 8. When Daniel wants to know what's going to be the outcome of these events, talking about the, uh, the end time events, he is asking about those in particular. And this would align with, uh, uh, to complement the idea that things will become clearer for the rest of it along the way. Either way, he says here that the words of the vision have finished, the conclusion is happening, and Daniel is supposed to take these words and he is supposed to say, all right, these are not going to be added to, this is all you get, and you're supposed to preserve these because these will have value for people in the time to come. Now, we can look at this before we move on and say, of course, these have great value for us today because we have seen God's prophetic predictions come to pass. We have seen him in sovereign control over history, not just in control and not just stating it, but actually demonstrating that he knew what was going to happen in advance and making sure that it happened. And we see God's power and God's character and God's faithfulness on display and that God is still to be trusted even when difficult times come for his people as happened in certain days that were pro uh, prophesied in this chapter. And so now we zoom out and... Uh, as we did at the start of this vision, early in chapter 10, all the way back almost three full chapters ago, we get a picture, not just of what Daniel is hearing, but of what he is seeing, of what he is seeing. And this leads us into the next section, answers to questions about the final events. Answers to questions about the final events. Verse 5, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, Two others were standing. He describes two other beings. He doesn't describe them except to note their location on the sides of the river. 
They are uh, likely of the same nature as angelic messenger, not just random other human beings who happened to be there. All of those had run away when the angelic messenger first came. Uh, There's one on each side of the river, he says, uh, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. This river, of course, being, according to chapter 10, verse 4, the Tigris River. The first question that is asked is asked by one of these on the side of the river, not by Daniel, but by one of them. And uh, one said in verse 6 to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? How long will it be until the end of these wonders? So this is the question that he is asking. Notice how specific this is. He doesn't say, when are they going to start? That's what I would want to know. How long is it going to be until these things start? But he says, how long will it be until they end? That is, the things that you've just talked about, how long will they last? And it seems that he is speaking about a very specific section of the prophecy when he talks about these wonders these wonders. And the reason we can say this is because in verse 7, he gives an answer. He says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven. He swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So he asked him, how long until the end of these wonders? He says, when this happens, all these events will be completed. There are two things that he says have to happen. There are two uh, sort of chronological markers, and one of them is actually a time period that's given, and the other is an event that takes place during that time period, and that it's brought to its end during that time period. The time period is... Three and a half years. Three and a half years. He says it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Now, as we looked at last week, uh, we saw in Revelation 12, verses 6 and 14, you put those together, and it speaks about 1260 days. Three and a half years is how that works out in a 360-day calendar that they would have been using. And it becomes very clear that this three and a half year period is what is meant by the time, again, a single time, times, which would be two and a half a time. One plus two plus a half equals three and a half. When he is then referring here to a time, times, and half a time, it stands to reason that he's referring to that three and a half year period and that he is specifically talking about this three and a half year period being these wonders. Which makes sense because he's just talked about that in the first three verses. This time of distress such as has never occurred until there was a nation until now. It speaks of the time when midway through the seven year of Daniel's 70th week, the three and a half years in, there is a turn and a breaking of a covenant by Antichrist. This time period that's described in the second half of the book of Revelation All of these things align. And this, of course, was spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, In this way, it says, The saints of the highest one will be given into his hand, referring to the little horn, Antichrist, as pictured there, for a time, times, and half a time. And so here he is saying, This 
set of wonders, this time of great distress, all the things that I've just told you about immediately preceding this, these are going to last for this long. This is how we know that he's not referring to the entirety of the prophecy of chapter 11 and into 12 when he talks about these wonders because he says it's going to be for three and a half years. And we already know historically that the prophecies of uh, verse 2 all the way through verse 30, 35 took place over well over 300 years. So clearly he has his sights set on this end time. Again, this makes sense if he says seal up the book until the end of time. This is what he's talking about. So the three and a half years is the time period. And the final event is shattering Israel's power. Shattering Israel's power. As soon as, verse 7, he says they finish shattering the power of the holy people. He says we have got to smash them. They have to be completely broken. This speaks of the dramatic crescendo at the end of the sufferings of Israel under the persecution of Antichrist during the final period of distress. Verse 1, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. There have, of course, been many instances of the Jews suffering throughout the course of their history as a nation. Have there not? Egypt, they were enslaved for hundreds of years. They were conquered repeatedly during the time of the judges. After their kingdom uh, was united for at least uh, you know, a few decades, they were divided and then eventually the northern and southern kingdom of Israel were conquered and taken into exile. First to Assyria and then to Babylon where Daniel finds himself now. Then of course you have the sufferings described in the prophecies of Daniel 11 culminating in Old Testament times in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes in the 160s BC. Great suffering that they went through. The destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, all the way up to the horrors of the Holocaust during World War II. And yet, the nation has never reached the point where their power is completely shattered. In fact, the current nation state of Israel has made quite a name for itself in terms of military power and technology and prowess. And so what's described here in verse 7 has not yet happened. But it does seem to be the goal of this final three and a half year period. God intends to allow and to use Satan's instrument, Antichrist, to drive Israel into the dust. To bring them to the point of complete subjugation and powerlessness. And to completely break them. And right then... At that moment when things seem to be over and hopeless, when there is no chance and this nation is done, and when circumstances would tell us that all is lost, God is going to step in and rescue them. And all of the things that he has said that he will do are the things that are going to come to pass. Zechariah 13 8 and 9, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. He says, when this has happened, all these events will be completed. Now step back and think for a second. Um, why is this 
angel answering or asking this question or this being, whoever it is, why is he asking this to begin with? This, he's just there. And, you know, it's one of those times where uh, God has basically taken someone and planted a question in the audience. You know how that works, right? When you want to make sure that something gets brought up. Well, here it is that God has planted this guy here to ask this specific question so that Daniel will understand this and so that we can understand this. He wants to make sure that the significance of this is understood and that this message is reiterated to them. God wants to make sure that they know this. And what he's doing is this. This is going to be such a difficult time for Daniel's people, for this holy people, for this nation, that it needs to be reiterated that it is only going to be for such a short time. It is only going to be for this little period of time, relatively speaking, three and a half years. And that therefore they need to endure it, and yet they will be able to endure it because God is graciously going to make it in this way. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He's not saying God is going to change his prophetic plans. That's already written here. In the book of Daniel, chapter 12. And it's consistent all the way through into the book of Revelation. Well after the time when Jesus had already departed to heaven. Well after the time when even the temple had been destroyed. When all of these things are still being predicted about the future. The same period of time is there. This is not that God looks all of a sudden at this last period and says, you know, I think this is going on too long. Let me change my idea. Let me change my plans. And let me cut that short. It's not that. He's just saying, otherwise, Antichrist would have continued to have the run of the place. And instead, I'm going to bring him to an end, and I'm going to rescue this people that he is persecuting. And so when it seems like things are over, that's the exact moment God is going to step in and save them. And there is a reassurance here that this will only last so long. And yet, and yet, what is it that has to happen for this to come about? There is here a required shattering of this people, a humbling, a refining, a bringing them through the fire, bringing them to the end of themselves. This is a people that from the time of their departure from Egypt were stiff-necked. This is what God tells them. And they were so hard-hearted, even when he was bringing them out of Egypt, they tried to go back. They tried to get rid of Moses and go back to Egypt. And then they carried along their own idols and worshipped them all the way in the desert, all the way to the promised land. And this is the case all the way throughout their history. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, came to Israel and they rejected him. Not just the prophets, but the Son. This is how rebellious and how unbelieving the vast majority of this nation has been toward God and toward his Messiah for all of their history. And so God is going to have to bring them to the end of themselves. But, you know, they're not the only ones that have to be brought to the end of themselves. Everybody does. Everyone does. For Israel, it's going to be nationally and circumstantially to break their proverbial stiff neck. But there are many people, and maybe even some of you, who refuse to acknowledge your need of a savior before God. You say, I'm fine. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm not that sinful. Okay, I'm, maybe this is the right way, but surely I am not so sinful that I need 
Christ. I would like to have him. I would like to have the salvation because I know he's the Savior. But I'm not really that bad. You know, I I don't really need God in that way. Sure, I need him to provide for me. And I know that I need him to care for me and to answer my prayers sometimes. But surely it's not that I am nothing. And the reality is you need to be brought to the end of yourself. Sometimes God makes us aware of this by humbling circumstances. And he brings us into a place where we really have nothing else to give. And God is gracious in those moments to do that and to cause some people to have their eyes open. But as you know, even in those cases, many times people can refuse to repent. And they can refuse to acknowledge Christ as Lord and refuse to acknowledge their need of him. Nonetheless, sometimes he does that. But God doesn't have to bring you into the worst of circumstances. This is a matter of the heart. This is a matter of humbling yourself. And so you may be the person who is the most well-off and wealthy and rich and successful that there's ever been in the world. And you can still humble your heart before God without having to be driven into the dust. Wherever circumstances you find yourself in, this is where you need to be. This is the cry of all believers that we have no hope except for Christ. We know we're sinful. We know that we have nothing. We know that we had to come to the end of ourselves. And we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Because we have no claim upon him. And yet this is what some of you here perhaps need still to do. This is the message that we, uh, we need to be humbled and brought low. God graciously is going to do that for Israel to drive them to this point, And then he is going to pour out his spirit upon them. He is going to do what verse 1 says. At that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued probably aligns with the third part described in Zechariah such that even uh, some who are living at that time, maybe even the majority will not repent, but there will come a time when God brings about all those who are left. He will make a nation that will respond to him by faith. This is brought up then in the next section, the other question that's asked here by Daniel himself. Daniel has a question too. Daniel's question What will be the outcome of these wonders? What will be the outcome of these wonders? Now the attention turns to his single question. And uh, he gets a disappointing answer, perhaps uh, at first. Verse 8, as for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? What's this going to bring about? And it says, I heard but I, I didn't understand. Do you get what he's saying here? He heard it, and it makes sense. Like the word makes sense, the language makes sense, the grammar makes sense. But I don't, I don't get it. I just feel lost. Like I, I see these words, but I'm looking into the future. I'm looking into the significance of this. I just, I need more. Can you give me more? And he says, go your way, Daniel. <laughs> he says, just scram. I'm not telling you anything else. You've gotten all that you're going to get. Now, he's a little bit kinder than that. He is more encouraging to Daniel. But, but this is the idea. Look, no, that's it. You're not getting anything else as far as how this is going to play out, these details of what's going to happen. But he does kind of give him an answer in the next few verses. But he says, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed up until the last time. Um, These are preserved, again, if you think about the nature of that last time, they are going to need these words. And again, these are an encouragement. These are meant to be an encouragement to people living in those times. Look, 
They've seen all that God did during that. They've seen how God superintended the events of history and how he made sure that these things happen. Anybody who is looking at this is going to say, if they have this stuff and they're suffering this intense persecution right before Christ returns, they're going to look at this and say, man, hasn't God been faithful? Hasn't God been right about all this other stuff? Well, who am I to distrust him when these other things are happening? Yes, this is very, very painful. It's very difficult. And yet, God has been faithful until now. How will he not be faithful in the future? So there is this uh, promise, this, this comfort that he intends to give. And that is, uh, that is what he gives to Daniel. But he is going to tell him a couple of things. He's not going to tell him about all the geopolitical details any further. But he does tell him a couple of things. And they pertain to the primary concern that people should have. Once they have sorted out all the details and understood the facts... Okay, what has God said about this? And how does this look? And what is this going to look like? As you're sorting those things out and trying to come to conclusions about what God has said for the future, there are a couple of things that should be our focus. And he lays them out here. Um, What will it look like for someone righteous to live properly during this time? And what is the proper spiritual response When these things happen. That's really the idea. What does it look like for me to live godly during this time? And how should I respond spiritually to the fact of these things coming in the future? Um, What he shows us first of all in verse 10 is that there will be a distinction. The righteous and the wicked will be distinguished. The righteous and the wicked will be distinguished. Uh, Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. This is the same language that was used of those during the time of Antiochus uh, in chapter 11, verse 35. They are purged, which is to have something removed. Uh, They are purified, made spotless. The picture is like white garments, and they are refined. This is the idea of removing impurities from a metal like gold or silver to make it into something pure. So they're going to have all of this stuff removed from them. There is a purpose behind what is happening. They're going to be prepared for glory. They're going to be made more what they ought to be and what they would want to be if they're righteous people. At the same time, the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand. This is an indictment upon them. And notice this, even at this final time, When such a focus of God's activity has returned to this nation, when all of these prophetic events are coming true and God's word is clearly being fulfilled, miraculous prophecy clearly coming to pass, and even when there is great danger in the world and there's only one who can rescue, which is God himself, there will still be those who refuse to repent. Even at that time, There will be those who refuse to repent. The wicked will act wickedly. This is who they are. Oftentimes, uh, we might think that if God really is true, if what his word says is true, then he'll make that just very clear to us. He'll, He'll prove that. He'll whack me on the head and get my attention and kind of make me believe. Or people will challenge God and say, you know, if the Bible is true, show me a sign. Show me something right now. God, if you're real and if your uh, word is true, then you, just, then you do this or that for me. And we put demands upon God. 
And we like to delude ourselves and think, you know, if, if God would just show me this or that, then surely I would respond to him. And of course, there's no end to that which we would demand from God. But more than that, at its heart, this is not a matter of evidence. This is a matter of a heart that does not want to give up its rebellion against God. The wicked will still act wickedly. This is described in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11 and 12. It says at that time, this reason, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Why do people not believe the gospel? Well, for those who haven't heard, it is fundamentally because they haven't heard. And yet for those who hear and don't believe, it's because they want to remain in their wickedness. They can come up with all kinds of academic and intellectual excuses. They can say, give me the evidence. They can say, this doesn't line up. They will come up with any reason that they can, any reason they can find to hold on to their rebellion against God. This is the nature of the human heart apart from redemption in Christ. The wicked will still act wickedly. And it says that they took pleasure in wickedness. No sign is enough. The uh, story in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, he says, you know, even if somebody goes back from the dead, they're not going to believe, which is exactly what happened when Jesus came back from the dead and many still refused to believe in him. This is the problem with thinking that it's a matter of something outside of yourself that causes you to respond to God in the right way. What happens is you need to be willing to humble yourself and to turn and to say, Christ is Lord. He is the one that I must submit to, and I am willing to do that. And I know that he'll help me. I know he'll change my heart, but I need to be willing to give up what I have done in rebellion to him. And I know that's difficult. It's hard to consider giving up some of the sins that we hold dear outside of Christ, and yet this is the very thing that he demands. The wicked will act wickedly despite whatever is going on. They won't understand, but those who have insight will understand. Those who have insight, those who are wise and show discernment, they are going to get it. They're going to grasp what's going on. And in fact, they will most likely at this time recognize the times. They will understand this is the season. This is it. They're going to hear these words that were spoken to Daniel. They're going to have these words of scripture and this prophecy and the light's going to come on and they're going to say, oh, this is what he was talking about. And they're going to understand. And they're going to live godly in light of that. Um, There's a reassurance here that despite the hardship that will come, there's still immense value in righteousness and in insight. We don't just say, well, this is hard, so what's the point? We're suffering. What's the point of being righteous if you're just going to suffer anyway? Well, there's a lot of point to it. There's a lot of point. And not only that, but there is a purpose in the hardship that it is refining and distinguishing and it proves out who you are. Suffering is never for no reason. In God's plan, suffering is always for a reason. It always has a purpose. We may not know what it is exactly. We may not know the little, uh, the little sliver of what he's doing in us and understand exactly what he's doing, but we know that he's doing something. We know he's refining us and purifying us and bringing us ever closer to what we ought to be and what we one day will be in Christ's presence. So even if it's difficult to see in the moment how he's going to use that, we can know and we can be confident that God is going to use this. 
Now, in addition to acting righteously, there is an uh, implied instruction here to be patient, to have endurance. Because he says, those who wait until the end will be blessed. They who wait until the end will be blessed. Verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. This speaks about the removal of the regular or continuing sacrifice, which would have taken place in the temple according to the regulations that were given in the Mosaic law. Now, if you are an astute reader here, you will notice that something is stated here without being explicitly stated, namely, there's going to be sacrifices going on in the temple, which is not the way that things are right now because there's not even a temple where it's supposed to be. So this implies there will be a rebuilt temple and there will be the sacrificial system up and running, which would align with what he has said in chapter 9, verse 27, that he, Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So this is good for now. And maybe it's even that he is the one who brings this back to pass and who uh, they trust in for a time because he was able to get this temple up and the sacrificial system back up and running, potentially. Either way, it is at that time happening, which means that a temple will have been rebuilt at this time and a sacrificial system is back up and running. But then the abomination of desolation will be set up. A phrase that's recurred in many places throughout this book, chapter uh, 7, chapter 9, and chapter 11. And this refers basically to something that is just horrible and vile and that brings destruction. Um, In this case, this most likely consists of a combination of Antichrist himself sitting in the temple, entering the temple, proclaiming himself to be God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. And then an image or a statue of him being set up for worship at the behest of the false prophet, his henchman, according to Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15. When this happens, then from the time that this vile abomination is set up in the temple, there will be 1,290 days. Now you may notice here there's a discrepancy between the standard number of Uh, days that we've been reading about 1260 and this 1290 there's 30 more days going on here 30 more days where um, until this is going to come to an end not only that you look in verse 12 it says how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1335 days so that's 45 more days beyond that so 75 extra days you say what is going to be going on during those days and my answer is I have no idea I have no idea. I can give you some guesses. Perhaps this is the time when it's needed to sort of clean up and to set things back up. Uh, perhaps it's a time, as some have suggested, and I think it's perhaps good, of, of judgment, of passing judgment as Jesus has promised to do when he returns, of appointing people in certain places. This is very possible. Um, we, don't, we don't know what he's going to do. This time frame doesn't really show up in other places that give us those details about what is going to happen in those specific times. Um, the most important part, and of course this, as I've said with some other things, this will become very clear in its time. The most important part is that the readers need to know that something lies beyond that time period. Um, The wonders are going to end 30 days or 45 days after that, after Antichrist's utter domination has finished. And people need to wait and endure 
they need to um, persevere and hold fast. There is a reassurance given here that waiting through these events will be unspeakably rewarded. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. So again, you're saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm here. This is, oh, we're a year in. This is, how are we going to make it? How blessed is he who keeps waiting to this? And of course, this endurance is not just for those who will live at that time. James 5 says that we need to endure until the coming of the Lord, to be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord, because, as he says, we count those blessed who endured. Job endured, and we saw the outcome of how God dealt with him. What do we need to do then? We need to focus on being righteous and practicing endurance, waiting until the end, waiting through the hardship, knowing this is only going to be for a certain time. By the way, you notice back in verse 7, this is something just to kind of wrap all of this that God wants us to be assured and these people living at that time to be particularly assured. Um, He swore by him who lives forever and ever, raising not just his right hand, as is the standard way of making an oath, but both hands together. This is absolutely going to be the promise. It will not last longer than this. Hang on and you will be rewarded So Daniel gets some final instructions for himself in verse 13. Instructions for Daniel about his personal future. Go. Go your way, Daniel, to the end. Live the rest of your life and then secondly, die. You will enter into rest. He's not commanding him to die. He's just saying this is going to happen. You're not going to live until the end of these events. But you go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest. What a blessing for Daniel in the midst of all the turmoil he had gone through. But that isn't the end for him either. Rise again, he says. You will rise again. This is a promise. You will rise again and you will be rewarded at the end of the age. When all these things are coming to pass, Daniel, you're going to be part of that group that is raised to life, that is resurrected. And of course, Daniel would find himself in this group, verse 3, those who have insight They're going to shine brightly, those who lead the many to righteousness, because how many people has Daniel brought to such a state? Even us today, how grateful we are to have him and to have these words from him. So these are the final words to Daniel. What's the message to us? That we also share a reward, that we should labor to be the kind of of student of God's word and someone who has the faithfulness of God as Daniel. Again, we'll look at more of that as we recap. But then that we should endure and act godly in the midst of whatever suffering comes upon us because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you for this um, encouragement that we find that even as he hones his instructions in on a group of people that is not directly us, we can see your character and your promise and the value of righteousness and perseverance on display. Please help us to be such people And help us to long and to look forward to your coming. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.